Welcome to the Curiosity Conversation. Today we're speaking to Dr Ellen Garland, who's a Senior Research Fellow in the School of Biology. Ellen's research interests are animal culture, social learning, bioacoustics and behavioural ecology. So she is particularly interested in the cultural transmission, vocal learning and function of humpback whale song. You tell me that it's evolution. Well, you know, we all want to change the world. So said the Beatles. And Ellen is trying to find out whether whales have cultural revolutions. Today's episode is called, You Say You Want a Revolution. Welcome, Ellen. It's lovely to have you here to record an episode of the podcast. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. <laughs> We're going to be talking about all things whale related today, which is very exciting. Matt, you've got a whale fact that you've now told absolutely everybody <laughs> who will care to listen. <laughs> that, that, that is true. I was astounded, Ellen, that whales are as loud as 747 aeroplanes when they sing. I thought they're really, really loud. So they're really absolutely belting out their song. <laughs> yeah, that's that's quite amazing. You imagine that an animal that big would produce a loud noise, but that's an exceptionally loud noise. It is very, very loud and it sort of puts it into context that, you know, we can when we get within about sort of definitely within twenty meters, but you know, fifty meters, sometimes you can hear the song coming out of the water into the air so you know that you're close to the animal when we're trying to get in closer to get identifications on them we'll get that little bit closer and sometimes you can suddenly hear them singing which oh, will pull up on the boat and then we'll be like wait wait it's a singer it's a singer we've got to, we've got to record we've got to record that is so cool so we're talking about specific species of whale and um, tell us a bit about that specific species of whale so the specific species that I focus on, that I study, is the humpback whale. It's probably the one people are most familiar with, the ones that tend to launch themselves out of the water. So they do these big breaches and there's these big splashes and a lot of whale watching is involved with this species. So it's this particular species that we know a lot more about their song. So these are our big singers. And we have featured these wonderful whales in your research in our exhibition What Makes Us Human, which is now on at the Wardlaw Museum. And one of the things that we've tried to do in that exhibition is draw to people's attention what the similarities between humans and whales are, and that's maybe something that we'll get into in this conversation as it progresses. Um, the whales that you're talking about, they, they have names, right? We can name them. I mean, we have, of course, a very scientific name. We give them numbers so we can keep track of them, but we're also rather human and we do like to name them each day because, you know, you're, you're out there for a long time and sometimes we would like to, to give them specific names. So we have Eiffel, for instance, we have Bob, we have Evil Rabbit, which is a new one, but you can see he has quite a black tail and then these two amazing white bunny ears. So he's very distinct and we can see these animals from a distance. So the underside of their tail is like a fingerprint and we can identify them based on these. So we'll take a photograph of that and that would be their ID. We also will take a genetic sample to make sure that we get their genetic ID as well. That's so cool. I like the thought that there's just a whale out there that's called Evil Rabbit. 
Is Evil Rap a good singer? He is a good singer. So we have a number of recordings from him and we're working through our analyses at the moment to see if the ladies like him or not. Amazing. So in the exhibition we discuss whether humans and whales are similar and in particular that we compare the, the, the humpback whales to four people from relatively recent history Specifically, John, Paul, George and Ringo, uh, the Beatles. How are these whales in some way like the Beatles? Okay, so we're going to take a step back and then we'll actually find out how they are very similar to the beetle mania that went across the US. So, each population of humpback whales will sing their own song. It's only the males that are singing. We think the song is to do with sexual selection. So it's a reproductive display, either other males saying I'm big, I'm strong, or aimed at females to attract them in for mating. But this is really debated, or it could be both aspects, but it's something to do with reproduction. So the males within a population will be all singing the same song. And the song constantly changes from year to year, from breeding season to breeding season. And all males make these same changes. And they have this really strong song conformity. However, what we found is that these populations within an ocean basin, the songs would be similar. But in the South Pacific, we found songs spread from the east coast of Australia, located in the west, across the South Pacific, to the east, to French Polynesia in the middle. So we had these song revolutions. So what happened is a new song turned up, all males abandoned their current song and learned this completely <laughs> different song really rapidly. And so it was this really amazing revolutionary change and these songs swept across the South Pacific. We had these cultural waves of song spread from one year to the next, to the next, to the next. And the best analogy we could find in the entire animal kingdom was Beatlemania, where these brand new pop songs turned up and then mania spread across the entire US. So it was really rapid. So for humpbacks, it's an amazing example of this population-wide cultural transmission which happened regularly and repeatedly across the entire South Pacific over a decade. And now we've tracked it for two decades. Do we know why these whale populations change their song? They, they get them from another population, they take it on. Do we know why that happens? So we can only hypothesize at this stage. We know that they tend to like these new novel songs because they switch to them. So there's something about a novel song mm. that is, you know, that, that they want to sing. But exactly why, what is driving that, we're actually doing research into those questions. Why would you abandon your current display? It can be 20 minutes for just one song. Why would you completely stop singing that and have to learn this completely new song so rapidly? It's like changing your national anthem every two to three years to mm. something your neighbor is singing, and that makes absolutely no sense. Mm. So we're just still trying to unravel it, but it's something to do with being novel, maybe standing out against the background of other singers, which may also be tied into whether you may, may then be a bit more attractive to a female, but we mm -hmm. don't know. So we're really investigating these different aspects at the moment. I think part of it, though, is that it is like the Beatles. You know, why would all of popular music just go, ah, that 50s stuff, just not, just not that anymore. Let's do something totally different. It's, yeah, it's so similar. It's, it's a great analogy. 
it's really striking when we have these different song types, these different revolutions turn up. It's really, I can hear the difference, and so mm. they'll be able to hear the difference. And it is just so striking when that does turn up. Mm. They're so, so different. They have similar sound types within them, but the arrangement of them is completely mm. different. So with a song, we have these singular sounds, which we call units, and then a few units are arranged in a stereotype pattern to make a phrase. Mm -hmm. Then we have repetitions of that phrase making a thing. And then we have a few different themes that make up a song. So it's like different movements in the symphony that make up that song. And the song can be anywhere from about five to 20 minutes long for one song. So there's a lot of sound types in there, a lot of material that's going on. So it's quite an intricate and amazing display just to abandon the current structure and then bring in a new song. Yeah, so there's almost no real crossover with what's gone before. It's pretty much, yeah, we've chucked it all out and we're starting again kind of thing. Exactly, amazing. exactly. There, but some of the same sound types are still mm -hmm. in there um, because they have a suite of sounds that, of course, that they can make. But their arrangement of them is just completely different, which is so amazing to hear something else come come in. I mean, you know, when the song is evolving, normally we have these little changes. They can add a few sound types or add a brand new theme or take out a theme and it just slowly evolves and ticks forward and they all make these changes and then the song revolutions come in and something completely different comes in and they throw what they're singing out the window and then they bring this in and it's just so different. It's amazing. And do we ever see Wales invent a completely new song? You've said some populations, they take on this song of another population. Do they ever just, like the Beatles at the start, come up with something entirely new? We don't know. Uh, we haven't found sort of where the revolution starts. So far we know it spread from the west coast of Australia into the east coast of Australia population and then across the entire South Pacific now all the way to the west coast of South America. We have recordings and collaborators in Ecuador we managed to uh, compare our songs to. But we don't know whether there is in, uh, a population that just invents these songs or whether they're then learning from their West and it's just continually being passed around the Southern Hemisphere. This is a very open question and really intriguing to see if we have inventors going on or these innovators where they're, they're creating these new songs. However, I would suspect maybe not because if they're all being inventive, if they're all inventing a brand new song, how does it then end up as a singular song? Mm. Which one would you choose if they're able to have yeah. that unconstrained ability? Because there is this really strong drive for conformity and novelty, which makes no sense at all. <laughs> and why I spend my time researching this really unique display. It's so fascinating. This is maybe a question that goes back a little bit, but when we speak about a population sort of travelling from one, one side to the other, how, how far does a group of whales travel? So what's really interesting is they have breeding grounds and feeding grounds. So they will feed um, in polar regions in summer mm -hmm. and then migrate more like north-south up or down to their breeding grounds, depending which hemisphere. I'm from the southern hemisphere, so I always think Antarctica feeding grounds, migrate north to the breeding grounds um, in the South Pacific and then back down again. And then occasionally they can meet 
on shared migratory routes. So they'll be singing, they sort of ramp up for a song, and then they migrate singing, go up to the breeding grounds, sing their little hearts out, and then can be singing a little bit on the way back down. So if there's any overlap in the migratory routes from one population to the next, they can intermingle, they can learn songs from the West, they can have song norming, where if they've been isolated on the breeding grounds and they're singing the same song type, that when they come back together, they can share all those intricacies and the song comes to a singular song type again. And then occasionally we can have animals moving between the breeding populations between years or within a season, mm -hmm. which is not as common. But we're talking the entire South Pacific. So we're talking 10,000 kilometres. We're talking 8,000 kilometres. There's a lot of ocean out mm. there. <laughs> So there's this huge, huge network of singers. They're going north and south, but the song goes from the west to the east. So there's these steps along the way where it's learnt, and then next year it's passed the next set of populations, and then the next. And how it is passed, and when it is passed, whether they've got a little bit of singing on the feeding grounds, or the migratory routes met there, or someone moved. It really depends which set of populations you're talking about mm. and we don't know further on and so thinking about how that can happen around the entire southern hemisphere is very intriguing it's a it's a long way it's a long way so how do you go about researching a whale song so we start by of course going out into the field and either we're out on a small boat and then we'll locate a whale and then put our underwater microphone our hydrophone on the side of the boat and record a singer right there, or we have autonomous recorders where we'll pop them on the seafloor, anchor them on the seafloor, and record for a couple of months passively. So we don't know who, which animals are linked to which recordings, but we can get a sample of what the song is in that location in that year. So once we get our recordings, we will bring them back to the lab and we'll start analysing them. We'll identify sound types, our units, we'll find out um, our different phrases, our themes and our songs for that population in that year. And then we'll start matching them and comparing them to see if we get song evolution or whether we find these completely different songs to song revolutions. So it's a whole lot of very intricate steps of quantitative analysis and some qualitative analysis to try and get some of the nuance that goes with these different songs. That's amazing. And obviously these animals are they're so big and like you said earlier you know you can hear the sound of them from above the water <laughs> even if they're underneath so what kind of precautions do you have to take when you're recording and there's these big big creatures coming along the way of course i mean these are these are wild animals and wild populations so their comfort and safety is paramount as well as the field team's safety. So we have uh, strict guidelines on how we approach animals. They are big. They're 14 meters long and up to 30 tons. They're big animals. So they will go wherever they want to go. So, I mean, when we've got a singer, because he's singing so loud, I don't want to be that close to him. I'll overload my equipment. So we want to back off just a little bit, make sure that we get a really nice, clear recording. But we can also know when he's coming up, get the dive times, understand when, you know, put the breaths um, logged with the recording so we know exactly when he has, a, exactly which breath goes where, make sure if we need to get any other additional samples. So we have a whole lot of behavioral data that goes along with a recording. 
If we're going to be taking a photo of its tail flukes, well, we need to be behind the animal to be able to take a photo of it. So we have to make sure we're not too close for that so you don't accidentally cut off the edges of the tail in the photo. So you've got to make sure you get the boat in the correct location and then if we're going to get a genetic sample, we need to be a wee bit closer to be able to get that sample. And we have very strict approaches and just make sure that the whale is happy. Most of the time, just doesn't care that we're there. <laughs> a lot of the times it's a big competitive pod, so there's a number of males who are fighting to try and get with the primary escort position with the female who's in the middle of that scrum, basically. <laughs> and so having a little boat going along with them, they don't really mind so much, but we always monitor every encounter we have. We monitor every genetic sampling attempt we have, whether it's successful or not, just to make sure that we do not disturb the animals and we have timeframes of where we're, how long we would stay with an animal and it's all regulated and controlled by the government, which is really essential to make sure that these animals are respected and taken care of. One of the things we have on, on display in the exhibition is the hydrophone, the microphone that you use to collect these whale songs. One of the things that surprised me, I don't know why I thought this, I expected a, a ginormous microphone, you know, a <laughs> metre across, something like that, and it's, it's not, it's tiny. I know, which is fantastic for being able to fly to remote fields, field locations, <laughs> it's really not that big and it's just a little handheld recorder. It's really versatile and we don't need that much. It's about a 30 meter length cable with a little, little microphone on the edge and at the end of it, that's all we need. And we get really nice, crisp, clear recordings and it's fantastic. So it's not so much kit that we have with us, but just understanding how to work it, make sure that we don't overload the levels because when we record sound we don't want it to overload because then we don't get all the sound so when we do our quantitative analysis we actually miss part mm. of the sound and we don't want to do that so it's all about making sure everything's set and where we position the boat to drift with the animal as well so we don't have the engine on so it's, it's, it's a whole lot of behavioral learning experiences about where you position because of the current so you can sometimes sit nicely and the animal will drift in the water column and you can drift along with it for an hour that's amazing but yeah gosh so much to consider that i imagine most listeners wouldn't be thinking that all of that goes into it so i'm sure that's been yeah fascinating for people to hear i think one of the things you touched on there ellen was this idea that you know in researching ethically it's so important not to disturb an animal or to be an imposition in any way and i think one of the things that we've tried to do in this exhibition is bring to light what impact human actions have on other animals and that's something we all have to be so aware of and one of the things that we've spoken about with whales is this idea of yeah underwater noise pollution and that sort of thing i wonder if you might be able to give us a bit of an idea of the impact that our behavior day to day that we might not think about is actually having on on the wonderful whales that you study Absolutely, I will do my best. It's not my specialty. However, sound does carry quite a lot further underwater. And so, I mean, when you put your head underwater, 
it's not silent under there. There's a lot mm. of, you know, snapping shrimp and just normal biological sounds that go on in the environment. And you can hear wave noises and all this kind of stuff that's normally happening underwater. But with some of our human activities, say shipping, they can start covering up these normal biological sounds. And of course, particularly with, with the whales, they use sound more than they use sight. Mm. So sound travels much further and faster than light will. So you can only see uh, at most in the clearest water 100 meters. Mm. But you yeah. can hear a really long way. And so by masking that, you know, they use sound for navigation. Some of them use it for prey capture. Some of them use it, I mean, with the humpbacks, you know, most likely for mating and finding mates and reproduction. And so reducing their acoustic space by having noise in the environment impacts these animals in ways you probably haven't considered. Mm. So it's always really important to think about if you're on a boat, that boat makes noise. If you're next to an animal with your boat engine on, you're making noise to that animal. You may not realize it. And I think just thinking about that underwater, there is a lot of noise. And of course, we will record boat motors. If there's another boat close by, we've got song recordings going. And so we'll quietly and politely ask if someone was able to turn the motor of the boat off. Yeah. And most people are really happy to do that. Mm. Um, for the science side, but it also gives people an understanding of how noisy boats can be. Yeah. And of course, there's other issues in the environment, lots of plastic waste, which can be ingested, and also uh, entanglements in fishing gear, which you'll see a lot of in the news stories. So there, these are just some of the, the issues that are going on, but are active areas of research, which mm. is great and it's exciting that this is being looked into so that our practices can be improved so that humans can coexist with the whales because I think it's really important that we are coexisting on this planet so mm. we still have to have shipping and these aspects but can we improve things I think it's the, the nice balance and really understanding mm. so we've seen a little bit about what researching these whales looks like we've seen how you see the impacts on the whales from human behavior in the exhibition people have the opportunity to, to step into your shoes a little bit they can identify different whale flukes they can listen to whale song and see if they can tell the difference between two different songs how do you get into researching whales if there's someone listening who wants to get on the boats and drop the microphones over the side what do they need to do so i've always since i was a child for some reason wanted to research whales and dolphins so i've pursued this and I've been really passionate and then I worked out that it was actually the sounds, it was the communication that most fascinated me. So I did uh, research as a PhD into these aspects and then got trained up into actually having to do these different field techniques and learning how to analyse this work. So it's quite technical, even though it maybe doesn't seem so on the surface. So it takes quite a lot of time to tell the difference between these sound types can be quite nuanced but I've always was passionate about this since I was a child and so I would read about it I would watch documentaries I would just try and find out everything I could so I'm always really pro people getting into STEM research so study biology study maths study statistics, mm -hmm. maybe study some physics as well if you're into sound, and just go with your passion. 
And I wonder, Ellen, one of the things that springs to my mind is that there's also a real possibility there for the, the crossover of science and music, right? Because we're, we're talking about sound and musical revolutions. Is that something that's being looked into? Absolutely. It's a really interesting interdisciplinary area right now. So there is a co-supervised PhD student of mine, Alex Self, whose PhD actually looks at music and humpback song. So his musical um, compositions are influenced by the song, by the structure, but also everything that he's learned, the theoretical background of composition, has been fed into how we start to analyze the song. So it's been a really amazing interdisciplinary project and I'm so grateful to have been part of it because I've started to learn and look at the song just a little bit differently, maybe appreciate it in a slightly different way and take on some of the slightly different um, analytical techniques that come from the music side of things, which has been really beneficial Mm. because we're all really interested to understand different things about the song. So cool. And I should say that Alex is going to be coming to perform at the museum in August, some of those whale compositions. So to all those listening who want to hear, you can come along to that. Oh, that's so exciting. He's a fantastic (laughs) performer and it's such an amazing piece of work and I'm so excited and so proud of him. So we've seen then that whales and humans share an element of culture, specifically music and song. Are there other animals that have culture or elements of what we might call culture? Absolutely. So culture, social learning, learning something from someone else, other animals absolutely do and it's really exciting the different aspects of this. So we've got New Caledonian crows who have tool use. We have sponging and bottlenose dolphins where they'll pop a sponge on the end of their beak, on the end of their rostrum, and go down into the deep water channels and forage for fish. And this is culturally transmitted. Um, So it's learned from mother to offspring, so that's vertically. There's examples of a whole lot of culture with the chimpanzees which I'm sure you've touched on in another episode and so there are these amazing examples of animal culture throughout the animal kingdom and so humpback song is one fantastic example humpbacks also have migratory culture so they have site fidelity for where they are born and where they feed and they're more likely to go back to the same location each year. So they learn the migratory routes from their mother. So we have vertical transmission. And humpbacks also have foraging culture where different feeding techniques can be passed through a population through time so that they're learning it from others in the environment. This is the lobtail feeding. So humpbacks in particular have different sort of behavioural domains they have culture in. So they have the focal culture, the foraging culture, and the migratory culture. So we have these multiple independently evolving cultures within a population, which is really exciting and really interesting. It's just amazing. I think it's the sort of thing that people come into this exhibition or, you know, listening to this podcast episode may well be really surprised by that there are so many commonalities between our experience and the experience of other animals. I wonder, Ellen, what do you hope people take away from knowing that? Oh, that basically whales are amazing and they're not (laughs) 
so dissimilar to us. They are in some aspects and not in others. And it's sort of finding out about all these really interesting things that these animals do because it's relevant to them. They just do their thing. And we're just starting to document and uncover some of the amazing things these animals do because it's just interesting. <laughs> and it's important to them because they're existing, they're swimming around, they're doing their things for them. And we're just really privileged to be able to be observing them. One of the big questions this exhibition is asking is if we share so many traits with other animals, including whales, are we really unique? How would you answer that question? Are humans unique? Yes and no. I mean, I think we take things to the extreme when it comes to culture, and that's really obvious with all of these buildings, all of the technology around us, but these early building blocks. So how this has evolved in multiple different species gives us an idea of the origins of these cultural diversity in the animal kingdom. So I think in a comparative sense, it's really important. But humans are definitely at one end of the cultural spectrum. And then we have other animals that have these really amazing cultures and cultural behaviours. I mean, with the whales, I would say humpbacks have complex communication. And I always build up for what this means. It is, they have all these sound types. It has this very hierarchical structure. It's very stereotyped. It is really controlled, but it's not a language. But it's getting towards this very complex communication, but I would never call it language. So we've got all of these different intricacies that we can learn about the origins of our own species by looking at others. That's amazing. Ellen, is there anywhere you would recommend, if people are sitting listening to this going, I want to know more about whales, I want to know everything there is to know about whales, where would you recommend they start if they wanted to find out a little bit more? So if you're really interested in the work that we're doing on humpback song and investigating it, if you happen to have Apple TV+, Plus, there's a documentary on there called Fathom, which is a feature-length uh, Emmy Award-winning documentary which showcases my research on humpback whale song and some of the field time and how we're discovering these different songs spreading across the whole South Pacific region. Uh, there's other another researcher on there as well who looks into the other side of humpback communication, the more social sounds and trying to work out what they mean. And so we have this lovely combination from the social sounds into the song. So if you're really interested, I highly recommend you go and watch. Alan, it's been wonderful to talk to you, I've a great deal about whales, and not just my facts that, that you originally shared with me about how loud whales sing. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure. You can see Ellen's research at the exhibition What Makes Us Human, which is open at the Wardlaw Museum until the 17th of September 2023. And if you enjoy the Curiosity Conversation, you could rate, review and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Join us next month when we're speaking to Dr. Kat Hobiter, who specialises in chimpanzees. It's going to be an excellent conversation. The Curiosity Conversation is brought to you by the museums of the University of St Andrews.